Our scripture reading for today is taken from Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This week in the church year often focuses on uh, being a disciple and a follower of Christ. We see that reflected in the reading today. So it was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus, at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. These are your words, Heavenly Father. They are your truth. We pray that you would, that you would strengthen our faith through them. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in seminary, I walked into the business office here at Bethany one day and uh, talked to the business manager at the time, a guy by the name of Dennis Natvig, and I had a $5 bill in my hand. And I said, Dennis, about 15 years ago, who... Uh, who paid for the pop that was in the pop machines here at Bethany? And he said, well, I guess Bethany did. We would buy the cans of pop. And I said, well, I owe Bethany some money. And uh, he said, why? I said, when I was about in fifth grade, I figured out that my arm was skinny enough to reach into that pop machine. And I stole about four cans of pop for me and my friends. And my conscience can't take it anymore. And uh, he laughed, of course. But I was serious. I was serious. It, it troubled me that, uh, that what I thought was kind of a childhood prank, kind of now as I got older, I realized that was still theft. That was still stealing. It's interesting how our consciences work. Sometimes at a certain moment in our life, things don't seem to bother us, but then all of a sudden, in some weird way, or for some reason, it hits us a little bit differently. And we hear about people who, even on their deathbed, will suddenly have pangs of conscience of stuff that happened when they were teenagers. Or things that, that maybe parents, as they're now trying to teach their children, remember what they were like and things that they did in their childhood. And it kind of comes back to them in a little bit different way. It's a little different sting to that to that knowledge of your sin. I always wonder with Peter, what was it that suddenly made him react the way he did to Jesus? Observing Jesus do this amazing miracle, 
But we're told right away, his, his response is to go to Jesus with this bizarre prayer. Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. What, what particular thing maybe was bothering him from maybe that week or maybe last year or maybe way back in his youth or childhood? We don't know. But there was probably some particular thing weighing really heavy on his conscience at that moment that made him want to put distance between himself and God. Isn't it interesting that, that a lot of times when we really become aware of our sin, sometimes our reaction is to think, the best place for me is to be as far away from God as I can get. The best place for me to be right now is to put distance between myself and God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they hide. They don't want to have to deal with God. Little kids with their parents when they've done something wrong, they run in the other room. There's a reaction in us that, that wants to avoid the authority, especially the, the intense judging law of this holy God. It's easier for us to stay away from him. That's why pastors will tell you that, that they're most concerned about members when they've been coming to church regularly and then all of a sudden they stop. There's quite often a reason in our hearts that makes us want to put distance between us and this holy judging God that has such power and authority and force over us. And Peter is a well-experienced fisherman. He knows that the only possible explanation for the, these boatloads of fish that are crushing their nets, the only explanation is a miraculous act of some divine being. He's standing in the presence of God. It suddenly strikes him. And the way his conscience deals with that is to realize his guilt, is to realize all the things in his life that he's done wrong. And his, his best answer is to come up with this awful prayer. Get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. We see this reaction frequently in the scriptures. Isaiah, when he's allowed to get a glimpse of God's glory in heaven, he says, woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of sinful lips. Moses, when he's in the presence of God in the burning bush, hides his face. The disciples at Jesus' transfiguration, when he glows in all of his glory and so on, they drop to the ground. They can't face it. They can't stand to be in the presence of this holy God. When I hear stories about people who claim that they've had visions of Jesus and it's so wonderful and warm, that's not the way the scriptures describe it. Those kind of situations, when they capture, terrify people. The holiness of God, the majesty, the power, and all of that just strikes through to the conscience and makes people say, get away from me. I shouldn't be in the presence of this holy God. Now notice how Jesus handles the situation. He doesn't challenge what, Je what, what Peter is feeling in his chest by saying, oh, you're not that bad. He doesn't say, oh, boys will be boys. Everybody does that. He doesn't try to talk him out of his guilt, all the things that modern psychology would try to tell us to do today. He doesn't try to get him to avoid dealing with his guilt and sidestep it, explain it away in some other way. He deals with it head on. He lets the confession stand because it's accurate. Wicked, sinful people like us should feel the terror of God's law so that we realize we should not be in his presence. That's where we belong by ourselves. But how does Jesus deal with it? He comes closer to him and he says, 
do not be afraid. That's how the gracious, merciful God deals with wicked people like us. He steps up close to us through his word and sacraments, through the office of the ministry, and he comes to us and he says, don't be afraid of this holy God. We have every right to be, but he doesn't want you to be. He doesn't want us to be. Don't be afraid. Really, what Christ is, is ultimately saying in that little phrase to him is, I am going to be going to the cross in a matter of years to pay and atone for all of your sins and all of the things you've done wrong that make you feel like you need to have distance between you and God. I'm taking care of all of that. You have no reason anymore to be afraid of this holy and just God. And that's what he does for each one of us continuously still today. He comes to us through his word and sacraments and he's basically saying, come closer to me, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of my power and majesty and the fact that I know everything about you. Martin Luther once said, the more disgraced you are, the quicker God imparts grace. I love that. The more disgraced you feel inside of your heart, the faster God wants to get to you with his mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace. And we see that happen so often in the scriptures. That, that God never hesitates when applying the gospel to somebody who is struck with terror about their sin. Adam and Eve, he immediately comes and promises them a savior. King David, when he acknowledges his sin before the prophet Nathan, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's the next line that he says to him. Isaiah, when he's crushed in the presence of God, God immediately sends an angel and grabs a coal from the altar of atonement to touch his lips. St. Paul, to the jailer at Philippi who's about to commit suicide, invites him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God can't get to the crushed sinner fast enough with his grace when we acknowledge our sinfulness and realize that we need his mercy and compassion. And now Jesus turns to this man who's just dropped in front of him, who wants to put distance between him. He forgives him and absolves him, but now he says, follow me. Follow me. In fact, Jesus says, I'm going to put you at the tip of the spear of my work. I'm going to put you at the front, of, front end of the mission of the church to go out and make sure other people know that they should not have to be afraid of God. When Christ calls upon you and me to follow him, it's never based upon force or coercion. It's always based on his mercy, his compassion, his tenderness that draws us so closer to him. He wins the dedication of our hearts by being such an amazing savior and knowing all that he's gone through for you. And following Christ is going to be worth all the hardship we will ever face. A German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this, the most urgent problem besetting our church today is this, how can we live the Christian life in the modern world? Peter had to face that in his day as well. He faced persecution and trouble and ultimately death by upside-down crucifixion for following Christ. In this life, sometimes we may wonder whether it's worth following this Savior. But we know what he's done for us by coming through the grave and that that promise is for each one of us in our future as well. And that's why Stephen continued to confess Christ even when rocks were being hurled at him. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to go into a furnace 
instead of lose that faith. That's why Elijah was willing to be the last prophet standing under the threat of death in his day. And why early Christians were willing to be thrown into arenas with wild animals. Years ago, a young lady in my congregation who was about 15 years old told me a story that happened to her in class at a public school. And she had been ridiculed by her teacher for believing in the doctrine of creation and still believing in Adam and Eve. And um, it was interesting, she said that after class, she had five other students come up to her and say, when the teacher was picking on you, I wanted so badly to defend you, but I felt like I couldn't because it would be so hard and so difficult. When she talked about that, I thought of Jesus' words. Whosoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. In your heart, God has worked the gift of faith in this Savior, to know of his grace, to know of his full forgiveness of all of your sins, even the ones that penetrate your conscience the, deep, the deepest. And it's the Savior that has given you the promise of your own future resurrection. And so today he invites you in your heart to leave your net and to follow him. Amen.